Sherry Bobbins, is that you? Hello, Willie. You'd know her? Hey, Sherry Bobbins and I were engaged to be wed back in the old country. Then she got her eyesight back. Suddenly the ugliest man in Glasgow wasn't good enough for her. It's good to see you, Willie. That's not what you said the first time you saw me. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Julie Andrews to my Dick Van Dyke, my co-host, Nate Story. How you doing today, buddy? Oh, super califragilistic expialidocious, of course. Very, very, very nice. Uh, and today we are joined by a very special guest. She is an associate editor and senior critic at That Shelf. Please welcome Rachel West. To quote Dr. Nick, hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, it's so I'm so excited to have you on on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And as you know, if, if it wasn't clear already by Nate's little reference here, we're going to be talking about... Mary Poppins and the Simpsons parody supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, annoyed grunt shiss, <laughs> uh, which is episode thirteen of season eight. Now to kick things off, Rachel, when we asked you to do this, you said you were a big fan of the Simpsons and a big fan of the movie, but you aren't necessarily the biggest fan of Sherry Bobbins. So could you maybe uh, like unpack that a little bit here? I, you know what, I don't know what it is, but whenever I'm watching the Simpsons, which is all the time, I skip this episode. I just, wow. Oh, wow. This is, this is usually a skip for me. Wow. And so when you invited me on the podcast, and I thought, okay, I need to watch it. This was the first time I've sat through it in a really long time. Huh. And? And I realized how many references are in it that I make all the time, despite <laughs> totally. not watching this episode at all. Yeah. Sure. And, and then I rewatched it again a little bit like, more recently just before our conversation and yeah it's still it's not growing on me i kind of no. I, <laughs> damn it i thought we were gonna like you were gonna be like and you know what i was wrong it's a masterpiece um so, okay so what well, is it what is know? it that that kind of turns you off about it or is it because you love the movie so much what do you think I think it's actually Sherry Bobbins. I think I just don't like her. Mm, I think I, interesting. I think I don't like the character. The scenes that she's in are m not my favorite, and the things that make me laugh have nothing to really do with her. It's other characters. It's other right. things I find funny, yeah. and I I don't know if it's just that it's kind of a Marge centric plot mm -hmm. that kicks it all off, and that that's not normally one of my favorite things, but. Yeah, not not a super fan of this one. Interesting. Interesting. I, I will say a lot of the best parts of this episode have nothing to do with Sherry Bobbins or Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like right. there are a lot of right. other really funny parodies and, and moments in this. Like you have what, Itchy and Scratchy doing Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. You have like the hair montage. Yeah. You know, like there's a bunch of other stuff in here that's really funny. They actually spent a lot of time in this episode watching TV. Because <laughs> yes. I think it was just running short. 
Yeah, they, they I literally just finished rewatching it with the commentary and they basically said like the episode was very short and they figured it wouldn't be because of all the musical numbers and it still came out short. So they were just like, we're going to pad this thing out. Let's just put in a bunch of like TV gags and whatever we could do to like meet our runtime, which seems to be an issue with uh, the Al Jean and Mike Reese episodes. They always seem to be coming up against this problem of it's too damn short. How are we going to get there? But one of the things that like Nate and I always like to ask about the episodes and the movies they select is like, why parody this movie? You know, like, obviously, there's so much to choose from. Why why this? And I think I kind of take an opposite view here because I, I, I will say this is definitely a top 10 episode for me. Oh, I God, vividly wow. remember <laughs> the first time watching it, which is really funny for most of these episodes i don't have that memory of the first time i saw it, but for whatever reason because i watched it at a friend's house and they were also kind of like musical theater people and like we just had such a grand time watching it but anyway i think obviously mary poppins the film is a classic and we're gonna get into all that but i think the thing i noticed watching the movie is that i think mary poppins kind of like hits a lot of the same notes as a simpsons episode one of the things that Nate and I have been unpacking a lot lately is the idea of like the James L. Brooks impact on The Simpsons and this sort of austerity and sincerity mixed with humor. And Mary Poppins has a lot of that. There's wit and there's satire, but there's also just like straight up silly visual gags. There's the musical numbers, which obviously like The Simpsons is starting to do more and more often. But like, yeah, I don't know if this is a film that the writers would cite as like a major reference point for them but i feel like subconsciously it is because there's just like tonally it felt kind of simpsonsy maybe not quite as wacky but i don't know it's interesting to me so i i don't know why you know they finally decided to pick mary poppins but when i watched the two sort of like close together i was like oh i'm seeing a lot of like similarities between the two which beyond just the parody elements mm-hmm. like there was this sort of like thematic similarities that sort of struck me but yeah i mean Listening to the commentary, it was really interesting because it seems like Al Jean was really keen on doing it mm-hmm. when they were at the show early on. They like put it up on the board and it never happened. And Mike Reese, who's his writing partner, was very, very against it, <laughs> which is really interesting because I think like the thing that strikes me about it is it really represents the show becoming more and more surreal over time because Mike Reese's objection was The Simpsons doesn't have magic in it, period right? It's a sitcom. It's a family sitcom where like wacky things happen, but it all has to be kind of within this reality. And Al Jean, I guess, like kept chipping away at him. And when they came back to the show, I guess he finally won him over. And then Mike Reese was like, yeah, I was wrong. (laughs) It works. Um, (laughs) But it is interesting because like, I do feel like it came at the right time in the history of the show, right? You're in season eight. So you're in like the Oakley and Weinstein era where things are starting to get a little bit crazier and crazier and crazier compared to, like, you know, season one, two, three, four, and even, like, five and six is pretty grounded. And, of course, they've always loved Disney, and they have, like, other episodes that get really into Disney as well. Yeah, you're right, Nate. I think if this had come sort of earlier, like, in the the Al Jean Mike Reese era, it would have felt a lot more out of place, Mm -hmm. but coming on the backs of episodes like... 22 short films about Springfield and like it it fits in much better at this era of the Simpsons. But like you said, it does have these sort of fantastical elements that the show never really had done before or really does again. Not well in the time we're covering. Yeah, they they (laughs) don't they didn't do a lot of other 
like whole hog musical episodes that were like front to back a parody of one thing that kind of comes a little bit later. It seems like Al Jean is a huge fan of the movie. That was the impression I got from the commentaries. It's like a movie that he really loves and thought would be funny to bring into the world of The Simpsons. But yeah, I also do kind of get what you're saying, Rachel. The more I thought about the episode, the more I was kind of like, I don't know if this totally makes sense. It kind of undercuts itself a little bit in terms of the character of Sherry Bobbins. Is she supposed to be like magical and perfect in every way like Mary Poppins or is she not? Because it's like the comedy of the whole episode as a parody. It's the idea of bringing Mary Poppins, who's practically perfect in every way, She's basically like an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, the Simpson family, right? And so it's like, what if Mary Poppins came to the Simpsons family and she couldn't fix them? But the thing is that Sherry Poppins actually isn't practically perfect in every way. She's kind of not very good and like gives really bad advice. (laughs) Yeah, she's wasted away. (laughs) And so it's sort of like that part of it doesn't totally add up when you start thinking about it and you compare it to the movie. The moment to moment, I think this episode's hilarious and there are so many things that I do quote all the time and I've like memorized all of the songs, but, uh, (laughs) but then coming back to it in this context, I was kind of like, Oh yeah, this doesn't totally add up. (laughs) But it's like the the songs are so good. They're almost too on the note. It it is very clear that people who like Mary Poppins did this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And like the songs are just, it's too much. It's too exact of a parody. I think for some of those songs. Right. It's true. Yes, I 100% agree with you. I wanted to ask you both because one of the things that they mentioned in the commentary is that originally they were hoping to get Julie Andrews to guest star. Right. I couldn't and... tell if that was a joke or not. Was that, I mean, no, I think it's true. I, so my understanding is that they did want to get her and they mentioned in the commentary that she was doing Victor Victoria at the time. And I didn't actually check the timeline to see if this is true. Victor Victoria was the musical adaptation of the film she had made in the 80s with her husband. Mm -hmm. And this is the show where she ended up getting vocal nodes and then had to get the surgery that basically destroyed her voice. So I don't know if that's the the reason or whatever. But other story that I, I read was like they were hoping to get her. And then basically Maggie Roswell did the sort of temp read or did the table read. And they were like we don't need Julian. Mm. Like, she's good enough. She's nailing this. Let's let Maggie run with this. So my question to you is, do you think it would have worked better if it had been Julie Andrews? How would that have changed the flavor of everything? I don't know if you need her. It, it, yeah. It, I, yeah. Like it's, it almost then stops being a parody if it's her. Right. It just right. becomes sort of Mary Poppins too. Like a cameo. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I agree because like, Again, a lot of the comedy in the episode, one of my favorite lines is when she first comes in and they're like, are you? And she goes, no, no, I'm Sherry Bobbins, an original creation like uh, Ricky Rouse and Monald Muck. Yeah. It's a great line. But they're like, I think they're, <laughs> they're really, in this episode, they're really pushing the fair use stuff pretty far. Like, I, I was yeah. thinking about that because like in some of the other commentaries we've been listening to, they talk about how like over time it got harder and harder to do these parodies and they had to move further and further away from the source material. But like, this is season eight. And so like, I remember we were talking about an episode in season six where they were saying that, and this episode is pretty on the nose, right? Like the the music, but also like Sherry Bobbins is pointedly a thinly veiled reference to Mary Poppins to the point where it's like the name Sherry isn't even spelt like the name Sherry. It's spelt like Mary. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. Like, so it is interesting the way they're doing this because it almost feels like they don't really have a lot to say about Mary Poppins. They're just making a point of pushing how far they can make it Mary Poppins without it being Mary Poppins, you know? Well, it's interesting, too, because, like, obviously now The Simpsons is owned by Disney. So, like, mm-hmm. this is all a yeah. point. <laughs> right. But at the time. They could just have Mary Poppins now. <laughs> yeah, they could just. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But at the time, yeah. Al Jean and Mike Reese, they were they were writing for The Critic. They were working for ABC, which is owned by Disney. Right. So much like The Simpsons love to do with Fox of, like, poking the bear, maybe they were, like, trying to poke the bear of Disney. I, who knows, right? But it is kind of funny to think that now it would all be a moot point because Disney owns everything. Well, anyway, because of the nature of the episode being ostensibly a front-to-back parody of Mary Poppins, we're going to sort of discuss the film and the episode sort of concurrently because there are so many parts that sort of weave it into one another. But before we do that... Rachel, how would you sum up Mary Poppins, the movie, in a sentence? Oh, God. Uh, this is something we always do to put each other on the yeah, spot. Yeah, we always sort of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Put each other on the spot to do a plot summary in like a sentence or two of the movie. You know, if you're meeting someone for the first time and you say like, oh, you got to see this movie, Mary Poppins. It's about what? A magical nanny who descends on 1900s England and teaches a family to... Like each other. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> pretty yeah, pretty much. Good. You know? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty accurate. Fly a kite. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, go fly a kite. Um, well, so the other thing that we love to do is to pull up plot synopsis from like very interesting sources. And so what I did was I went back to the VHS that I owned as a child because this was a movie that I watched a lot as a child. Mm-hmm. So this is the official Disney plot summary from... I'm going to guess it's like, it's the early 90s. It's not the original home video release of the film, but this is how how Disney describes the film. High above the dawn clouds of London, practically perfect Mary Poppins flies out of the sky and into the lives of two playful children. With the help of a carefree chimney sweep named Bert, the spirited nanny makes every chore a game and every day an adventure. With rooftop dancing, a leap into an imaginative cartoon world, and a visit to a hilarious floating tea party. But it may take more than a spoonful of sugar to cheer up the children's prim and proper father. With its brilliant blend of live action, animation, breathtaking fantasy, and memorable songs, there's only one word to describe Mary Poppins. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Okay. So there you go. That's actually a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one, although, like, they refer to Bert as a chimney sweep, which, like, that's just one of, like, the 17 jobs this guy allegedly has. That's true, but But his song is the chimney sweep song, basically. Yeah, I guess so. What is it? Chim 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 Cherie? Yeah, so what are your your two background with the film? As I said, we own this film on VHS. I watched it a lot. It was definitely a favorite of mine, so (laughs) this was a joy. Like, I literally was grinning from ear to ear rewatching this. Like, I... Love this movie, um, but what about you guys? I mean, Rachel, we, you sort of have already alluded that you're a big fan. Yeah, I um, this dates me, but my parents had recorded it off of TV on Beta Ooh, with nice. the commercials from like the mid to late '80s. Oh, well so done. I knew this movie end to end, every commercial break, all the words <laughs> to every commercial. I knew everything, and it wasn't until maybe ten years ago that I watched it on DVD end to end and was like i've never seen this scene because it was edited out for tv right oh yeah i guess that's true all of a sudden there were these parts in it that 
I'm watching for the very first time, but I'm kind of like you, like I, I knew the words, I know the songs, I know every beat of this movie. I could play Chim Chim Cherie on a little keyboard when I was a kid. (laughs) So I, I was super into it. That's awesome. And Nate, what about you? Because I feel like you're not as familiar with it, right? Yeah. So I have told this story on this podcast before, but my parents were not really VHS people. And so I did not own this as a kid. I don't think I owned any Disney movies growing up as a kid. The one VHS that Nate does remember having, Rachel, was Black Beauty. Yes. Oh. My mom it was like, of horses. all the films to own. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A classic. Everyone remembers that one. But yeah, so I, I think I never saw this movie until last year. Oh, okay. Really? I'm pretty sure. Last year? I'm pretty sure. My wife and I watched it together because she grew up with it and loved it. And yeah. um, and I watched it and I was like, I don't think I've ever seen this all the way through. It's like one of those things, again, you know through pop culture osmosis. But like, I really didn't remember a lot of those sequences except for like little clips. You see the stuff of like her coming into the house. You see the stuff of like the chimney sweep dance like mm-hmm. that's the kind of yeah. stuff that floats around a lot but like even the full cartoon sequence that's not something that actually you see as much in pop culture i feel like weirdly even though i think it's the best part of the movie but yeah so i it was all new to me which is the thing that we love about doing this podcast is it's like usually yeah. we try to find something that one of us isn't very familiar with and this is the one where i phew, i it was really a pleasure to come back to and understand what i was missing out on <laughs> see and i just i just thought for sure like this is a, a family movie Everyone's seen Mary Poppins. It was on TV all the time. So that that's really interesting to me that this one escaped you. Yeah, my family was just, we didn't do like family movie night at home, really. So we did a lot mm. of TV and then like we would go out to the movies sometimes. But like things that were really popular on VHS, like I missed out on basically, unless it was on TV. Wow. Well, then I'm really excited to tuck into this with a <laughs> a, a, a newcomer, as it mm-hmm. were. The next thing we like to do, Rachel, is we sort of like to tuck into the history of how mm-hmm. the film kind of came to be. So what's unique about this one, in at least for season two of our show, is that everything up to this point is a movie musical that's been based on a Broadway show, whereas... For Mary Poppins, the stage show actually comes much, much later. And the stage show is very much trying to do the movie. But it is based on a book, a series of books about this magical nanny named Mary Poppins. And the first book was released in 1934. And Disney basically, he found it and he read it to his daughters and his daughters fall in love with it. And they basically start begging him to make this into a movie. And he starts trying to get the rights as early as 1938. However, the author, P.L. Travers, just consistently refused. She was just like, no, you are not making this into a movie. I think it's also important to like contextualize that in these early stages, Disney is only known for doing animation. Mm. Even though there were a couple of like live action shorts or whatever. And then obviously later on, Disney starts doing more and more live action. But like the live action films, I don't know if you guys have seen some of those like 50s and 60s live action no, but they're not so. great like i don't know yeah. i might disagree i mean they, yeah. they have some charm to them but like they're not they're not mary poppins they're not mary poppins way. they all star like a young like kurt russell but yeah they're yeah or, or Haley mill <laughs> yeah, exactly or, yeah. but anyway so basically disney just he made a promise to his kids that like he's gonna make this into a movie and he continues to try for the next 20 years to get the rights and this struggle was eventually like, because it's Disney and Disney will milk anything for money. They eventually turned this into its own movie called Saving Mr. Banks with Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson, which is fine. I think, I think it's a good movie, actually. I actually yeah. think I saw that before I saw Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> that, which is insane to me. 
to be honest, Rachel, I saw it in theaters when it came out, and I haven't seen it since. So maybe my like memory of it is. I thought uh, it was not pretty good. good. I, yeah. Not, yeah, not I mean, it's Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Yeah. Like, it's, you it's can't nice. really go wrong. And it, so. It's a nice, yeah, it's nice. movie. And to see, it's a nice movie. But you get to see that whole drama behind the scenes and also, like, with the Sherman brothers coming up with some of the songs, right. yeah. I think is really good. So they cover all this. But basically, in 1959, he's in London and he finally, like, meets Travers personally. And after enough, like, begging and pleading, I guess, he convinces her to sell him the option to the rights so not the rights, yeah, but crazy. he now has the option to get the rights. So at this point, he then brings on the Sherman brothers and they start writing the music for the movie. I was watching a making of documentary and they tell this fun little anecdote of like, basically, they brought their copy of the book and they underlined all the chapters that they thought would make good scenes in a movie. And then Disney plops his copy of the book down and he had underlined the exact same chapters. Uh. And at that point, they knew, OK, <laughs> we're all on the same page here. Cool. It's a good story. Well, all of us except for <laughs> P.L. Travers, right. because they basically show her the script and she's like, no, this is garbage. I don't I don't agree. <laughs> and she has copious notes for them because I guess she still has like not like first right of refusal, but she hasn't sold the rights. Right. So she has like script approval and she's giving lots and lots of notes in this documentary. They refer to her as prickly. Um <laughs> I guess in the books, Mary Poppins is not the prim and proper, very loving, sweet Julie Andrews type. She's apparently kind of got like a, a harder edge to her, which naturally Disney sort of files down. But she did not like this fact. And she also didn't give a shit about the song. She was like, get rid of the songs. And she hated the animation. <laughs> basically, when the movie comes out, she was like so unsatisfied with the adaptation that she basically was like, OK, fine. You made the first book, as it were. No other sequels, no other derivative material. I'm never giving up the rights to this ever again. But I think it's interesting. One of the things, Rachel, we've sort of been talking about this season specifically is the idea of adaptation versus translation. I think from the sounds of it, what she was really wanting was a translation of the book so that it was just like, here's the book, but on screen. But I think one of the things that we're discovering is that for things to be successful, you have to adapt. You have to make changes. You have to be willing to say... This might work on stage, but it's not going to work on screen. This might work in a book. It's not going to work on screen. I would say, though, that like the other thing we're finding out, though, is that that's a really hard tightrope to walk. Right. Yes. And, yes, and there are plenty so. of counterexamples where they adapt mm -hmm. it too much and they've removed more than half the songs and mm -hmm. added a whole bunch of new songs and like shortened it a bunch. And like often it doesn't work. I would agree, though, that for me, I think one of the great things about this movie, and it has the benefit of adapting a book and not a stage musical, I think, but mm -hmm. it is a clever adaptation. It's a movie, for sure. It's not a book on screen. And it takes advantage of the medium in, in a lot of interesting ways. Which we are definitely going to talk into that. Mm -hmm. So the film was shot between May and September of 1963, and then post-production and animation took another 11 months, <laughs> which is wild. It eventually premieres August 27th, 1964, and Disney considered it the crowning achievement of his career. I think it is like well known that this is the movie that he was the mm -hmm. most proud of. It is something that he clearly tried to get made for over 20 years, like, and the fact that he managed to pull it off, he was very, very proud of that. It went on to be nominated for a whopping 13 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and won five. It won Best Actress, Best Editing, Best Musical Score, Best Song for Chim Chimari, and unsurprisingly, Best Visual Effects. So yeah, that's sort of the background of how the film sort of came to be. So we, we just did uh, My Fair Lady on the podcast. And 
of course, there's this whole controversy between these two movies because of Julie Andrews and she was in the stage production of My Fair Lady, wasn't cast in that and got cast in this instead. Then she, you know, goes on to win the Golden Globe and gives this speech where she's sort of catty about it. And anyway, so there's this whole thing. But like one of the things I was thinking about is just like how many similarities there are between these two movies. You know, the setting is exactly the same. It's London. They take place two years apart. (laughs) My Fair Lady takes place in 1912 specifically. The books of Mary Poppins take place in the 1930s. And they chose to set it actually further back in uh, 1910 specifically. You know, St. Paul's Cathedral figures prominently in both. It's the key set in like both of those movies in a lot of ways in terms of being out in the London streets. There's Cockney street urchins, there's Ascot races, suffragettes, <laughs> and even I feel like yeah. Henry Higgins and Mr. Banks have a little bit of like common DNA in terms of yeah, just bit. being these sort of like uptight Englishmen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but it was just something I noticed. And given all of the controversy between these two movies, I feel like the similarities just kind of like accentuate that even more, you know? Because what what was the reasoning for moving uh, Mary Poppins to, like, 1910? Was it so Mrs. Banks could be a suffragette? Like, was there an actual impetus behind that? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I know the suffragette subplot was added to the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Annoyingly, because they... They needed a reason for why she was a bad mother, basically. Yeah. Um, Why she was never around, essentially. Which is kind of awful. So maybe that's it, though. Maybe that's why they moved it back was because they're like, we need something for the mother to do. And so she could be a suffragette. And then that means we need to move it back in time. But otherwise, I haven't seen another reason why they moved it back. So, yeah, I didn't even realize that. So, like, it it didn't come up in my research as to what that reasoning was. Mm -hmm. Another fun connection to My Fair Lady, though, was apparently Admiral Boom they had originally cast Stanley Holloway, but then he had to bow out because he got cast to reprise his role as Eliza Doolittle's father in my, the My Fair Lady film. So they had to recast that role. So yeah, there's there's a lot of crossover with that film. And if I had to pick, uh, this is definitely the better film. But that's 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 neither here nor there. So let's talk into these lead characters, sort of the main characters. Obviously, we cannot talk about this movie without talking about the legendary Julie Andrews, who was not necessarily the first pick for this role. Oh, really? Um, they mentioned a few other actresses, but the one that sort of stood out to me as one of the people they were originally considering was Angela Lansbury, oh. um, hmm. who would actually go on to star in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which because Disney couldn't make any other Mary Poppins movies, <laughs> Bedknobs and Broomsticks is sort of seen as like a spiritual sequel. But in this sort of making of documentary I was watching, they basically said the Sherman brothers were watching, I think it was like The Tonight Show or something, and the cast of Camelot was performing. And they saw Julie Andrews and were like, I think we might have found our Mary Poppins. And so they called up Disney and uh, said, you got to go see Camelot. Because again, this is in a time when you can't just like PVR, the la- you know, Johnny Carson show. You have, it's like you missed your opportunity. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to fly to New York. And apparently Disney really didn't like casting people based on their performances in other things. So he was sort of like very resistant to this, but they managed to convince him. And I guess like by the second number or whatever, he was like, we, we found our Mary. So he goes backstage after the performance and literally offers her the role on the spot. But she has to go, uh, well, there's this one little tiny detail. I'm pregnant, so I'm not really sure I can make a movie right now. And he's like, that's fine. We'll wait. He was that convinced 
that she was perfect mm-hmm. for the role that he was willing to wait for her. And he also, on the spot, hired her husband at the time, Tony Walton, who was a set and costume designer. Basically, he was like, what do you do, young man? <laughs> and he's like, I'm a set designer and costume designer. He's like, okay, well, if it'll help me get your wife, you got a job. And this is, Nate, I didn't realize this, but in, when I was doing a little bit of digging, Tony Walton also worked on Bob Fosse's masterpiece, All That Jazz. Oh, no way. Huh, interesting. Which is one of Nate and my all-time favorite movies. So he basically offers her the role, but she still wasn't sure she wanted to take it because she was really hoping that she would get the role of Eliza Doolittle in the My Fair Lady film, which was about to start shooting. But obviously, as we know, Jack Warner said, like, no, you're not famous. I'm not giving you the role. We're going to give it to Audrey Hepburn instead. And we all know how that turned out. Fine. It turned out fine. <laughs> yeah, it turned out fine. It turned out fine. I think everybody got the role that they were intended to have. Yes, it worked exactly. out for everyone. And yeah. uh, in this documentary, Julie Andrews was very, very kind about Audrey Hepburn's performance in My Fair Lady and, and was had nothing but nice things to say because she is a wonderful British lady who <laughs> probably, I don't think, has a mean bone in her body. But I think the thing that was most surprising was that Travers, this prickly woman who had nothing but bad things to say all (laughs) along the way, 100% approved of Julie Andrews and allegedly said that she had the nose for it, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Well, because she's supposed to have have a turned up nose in the book, I think. Yeah. So um, the thing is, I actually disagree. I don't think Julie Andrews is just like a nice lady. (laughs) I, I think the thing that's perfect about her for this is that if you ever watch like interviews with her or like there's that story about the about the speech she gave at the Golden Globes mm-hmm. she actually can be very prickly and very cutting and funny in the way that she's well, she's British that's what they <laughs> right. do right she's <laughs> she's actually really has a dark side which i really love about julie andrews like she was telling yeah, this the, story. The accent masks it. Yeah, I think that's right. Exactly. Yeah, she, I think you're it's right. Just Rachel. like Canadians, right? I mean, like everyone's <laughs> like, uh, you know, they're so nice, so polite. Mm, watch out! But she tells this story. I think on a late night show where I think he was asking, "Do kids ever come up to you on the street because they recognize you as Mary Poppins?" And she's like, right. "Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they come up and uh, and ask me to do something magical, and I just box them on the ears." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. You know, she said it so dryly, and it's like that's the energy that she's able to bring to this role where she can be magical and kind and loving and has a beautiful voice. But then also there are some real, like, prickly moments in this where she's very harsh. Yeah, Rachel, what are your thoughts on Julie Andrews' performance? It's really hard for me to even separate her from this character because, again, as a kid, Mary Poppins is in high rotation, and so is The Sound of Music for Mm. me. So, you know, if you would have asked me at six who my favorite actress is, I'm probably saying Julie Andrews because it's like, oh, I recognize her. I like her. She's good. She's, you know, a nice person in both of these movies. And so it's really hard to imagine anybody else in that role. And I think that's also why I had a lot of problems with Mary Poppins Returns, too, with Mm. Emily Mm. Blunt. I was like, it's fine. I just don't care. I, I think, again, the right person was cast for this part. Totally. Yeah. It's it there are very few characters where the actor becomes the character and like just indelibly for the rest of time. Like yeah. this is one of those things where it's just it's so perfect. She will always be Mary Poppins. And again, I think Julie Andrews is a phenomenal actress and I've seen her in other films. You, you know, you alluded to Sound of mm-hmm. Music, which funnily enough, I one of the anecdotes I read was that the uh director and writer of Sound of Music came and saw the dailies one day for Mary Poppins and literally like on the spot 
cast her as Maria. Sure. They were like, well, she's perfect. So <laughs> I think that's actually one of the other weird things about my memories of this movie is as a kid, I think I just got those two movies mixed up. Where it was like mm. they're both Julie Andrews. She plays like a caretaker of children a in both. Nanny. And and yeah. uh, and the music's like different, but not that different. It's kind of you know at that age I wasn't yeah. really into yeah. musicals, and so to me it was just like yeah. it just all yeah. kind of blended together. One's more magical. One's about Nazis, but it's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Right, it's all old. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, it's all old yeah, in it's European. Old. So whatever. Yeah, exactly. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, look, as much as I love Julie Andrews, for me, the breakout star, the standout of this movie is Dick Van Dyke. And I know everybody shits on him for his accent, but like, I think he is so good in this movie. He's the first character that you're introduced to and and you unfortunately hear that terrible accent. But I mean, he just... Like, the way he moves as Bert in that opening scene, and then, like, when he turns to the camera, and he's, like, talking to the... He he immediately wins me over, and he has me grinning from ear to ear the entire time. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is this is only his second movie. Really? Like, he had been on Broadway in Bye Bye Birdie, and he had been doing the Dick Van Dyke show, which is, like, his, you know, his sort of breakout role. Was that, like, a variety show, or was what was that? No, it was, it was a sitcom. sitcom. It was actually, uh, yeah, and his wife was played by Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, okay. I think it's considered to be sort of one of the like groundbreaking early sitcoms. Like it's like there's the Lucy show and then there's the Dick Van Dyke show. But I mean, Rachel, again, I know it's hard to sort of remember necessarily what you thought when you were like six years old or whatever, but do you love Bert as much as I do? Cause I love Bert. Yeah. I, I love Bert. Like the chimney sweeps were my favorite as a kid. It wasn't the animated sequences. It wasn't Mary Poppins. It was the chimney sweeps. Like that was just my absolute favorite part. You know, I didn't realize until when I was much older that that's a terrible accent because I just thought (laughs) that's what they sound like. That's that sounds right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Nate. I man, I mean, I think he is pulling off something really difficult in this movie. Like Mm -hmm. it's because he has to have so much energy, so much like childlike wonder. He's doing mm-hmm. really big comedic moments and then very small emotional moments. You know, he's singing, he's dancing. Like, it's kind of wild. And I think for the most part, he pulls it off. I mean, again, like, yeah, the accent is cartoonish, is what I would say. But that yeah. kind of doesn't feel that out of place in this movie. You know, yeah. it's kind of fine, like, that his Cockney accent is very big. I mean, not that Audrey Hepburn's. You know, Cockney accent in My Fair Lady is exactly immaculate either. It's also big and cartoonish because it's a caricature of Cockney people. Like, you know, it's it's a class stereotype. Like, that's kind of the thing. But, um, yeah, no, I think he does an amazing job. And we'll get to it. But my favorite scene in the movie is actually a Burt scene in terms of the the actual acting side of things. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'll I'll say that, like, the fact that he's the old man at the bank as well. It is all in that body, like, from everything he does, from stepping down with the cane and that one step in the scene at the bank. Yeah. Like, you're right. This role is just so demanding, and he is just embodies all of this character. I, I was reading that apparently the kids were not told that he was playing the old man. Oh, really? So, And they also weren't told about any of the magic stuff that would happen. 
So mm-hmm. like all of their reactions on set were kind of like, you know, genuine, but like, yeah, they didn't know that was Dick Van Dyke. So they were just kind of like worried about him <laughs> the whole time that he was going to like yeah. fall over. Poor old yeah. man's going to fall down. Well, yeah. Apparently he tells this anecdote in the documentary that on his lunch break, when he was in his full, like Mr. Dawes makeup, he would <laughs> go outside the studio, go to a bus stop and then like very slowly sort of cross the road and make sure that, and like wave to the people on the bus so that they would be like, oh, there's this feeble old man. And then after the bus would pass, he would then start like running after the bus and just like and then continue to wave as the, so that people would just be like, what? what is going on? But yeah, I think he's giving such an incredible performance. And I think it's such a shame because I think most people, when they think of Mary Poppins, they think of Julie Andrews and they think of Dick Van Dyke's terrible accent or quote unquote terrible accent. And they don't give him the credit that he deserves. And I genuinely think that it is the best performance in the film. And he like he should be immortalized just as much as she And, is. and I just think that role is really important, right? Because like he is mm-hmm. the first character you meet. He introduces you to the world. And he is doing a lot of work to make Mary Poppins as magical as she is. And it's because he knew her before she's in this story. Right. The kids don't know her. The family don't know her. He knew her before. And so he's able to kind of build up her rep of like, who is Mary Poppins? What is Mary Poppins? So I feel like that's a really important part of why the whole thing hangs together, too. Totally. Well, before we start digging into the songs and the themes and all that stuff, there are a couple more characters we just should address quickly. There's uh, David Tomlinson is playing Mr. Banks. He also went on to star in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the aforementioned spiritual sequel and the thing that i thought was kind of interesting was like and rachel you alluded to mary poppins returns i kind of got like a bit of a ben wishaw vibe from him <laughs> i i see that he could be ben wishaw's dad weirdly uh, because ben wishaw goes on to play michael banks yeah like, mary right. poppins like, like, and it, it makes sense and i will say the older i get when i watch mary poppins i really identify with mr banks like yeah. the man's tired he just wants to yeah. like <laughs> you know right. he wants the kids to behave yeah. he wants to get his money at the bank like he just wants he wants to do well in his career totally well he is the protagonist of this movie like Mm -hmm. when you really get down to it like if you're thinking in terms of just the story structure he's the one who actually changes and learns Mm -hmm. something at the end and is also the one with like kind of the big conflict at the beginning he's just not the character that's on screen the most but uh, but yeah when i was watching it this time i was struck by the fact that this movie kind of feels like it's his descent into madness (laughs) (laughs) because he's just like you do kind of feel because he is really stressed out at the beginning and then he's kind of like gets tricked into hiring this nanny (laughs) she it kind of turns his entire world upside down because he's very orderly she's very Mm -hmm. magical and chaotic and like by the end he like thinks he's lost his job yeah. he's like he comes home to all these filthy chimney sweeps in his house. <laughs> right yeah and his then, hat gets punched and and like he kind of like loses his mind and when he finally yeah. loses his mind is when everything turns around for him but it is kind of like wild watching him his mind slowly shatter throughout this movie <laughs> totally but then like on the opposite side we've got glennis johns mm-hmm. as mrs winifred oh, banks God. who again like this character just what the hell is going on with this character okay so this is the thing that's crazy is that like in the books she's not a character Mm. like she's literally just referred to as mrs banks and i guess travers did sort of take issue with this as well but for whatever reason the songwriters felt like okay well we need to explain why she's not around so they do the suffragette subplot but then also like she always 
curtails to what Mr. Banks is right. saying. Which like is that supposed to be a bit? Like that's I don't, the thing. I couldn't it was so unclear out. to me. It's like is this just bad writing or is it supposed to be a joke? Where it's like she's a suffragette, but she she just like lets him sort of make all the decisions yeah. and idolizes him in this kind of patronizing way. Like I yeah, I just can't figure out what's going on with the character, and I think it's probably just that she's really it's a really thin script on that mm-hmm. front. Yeah, you kind of could pull her out and it would make no difference, which is, like, unfortunate. Yeah. Like, because, again, yeah, she is no. one of the only other female well, characters. Why not make the... Mr. Banks a widow? Like, that also would have worked. Right. Well, which is what yeah. they do in Mary yeah. Poppins Returns. And it, I think it works <laughs> a lot better, arguably. But so I guess she was relatively famous and Disney wanted her in the mm-hmm. movie. And so he said to her, like, will you be in the movie? And she said... Well, maybe if I had a song to sing, <laughs> I would be more inclined. So then they wrote that Suffragette song for right. her. But yeah, like she's fine, I guess. It's a very weird character, <laughs> though. Um, and then there's the, t- the the two kids, Karen Dotrice and Matthew Garber. They're fine. Like, I, I don't think they're particularly strong, but like they're kid actors. It's, yeah. like, it's what, of the era, right? Like, I mean, yeah. like yeah. this time it was enough for the kids to just be cute and... Yeah, that exactly. was kind of it, you know? There were, weren't a lot of expectations compared to now where we, like, want kids to be, like, Oscar contenders. <laughs> <laughs> it is cool that they kept so many of the magical elements secret from them in order to get these very genuine reactions. And you do see it on film. Like, you can tell that they are very much impressed by, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. what's going yeah, on. Yeah, there are some good moments. It's usually when they're not talking. <laughs> <laughs> you just see their reactions and that's, yeah. that's I good. Mean, yeah, yeah it, you're right. It, it is of the era of the style of the time and mm-hmm. they're fine. It is what you get with a lot of kids in the live action Disney movies of the 50s and 60s. So, you know, sure. it, it fits. But I think yeah, my totally. favorite piece of casting in this movie is uh, who plays the nanny who leaves. Oh, who's that? Right. You had a yeah, you had a fun little piece of trivia about. This. Yeah. The fact that it is, uh, again, lost on me as a kid that it's Elsa Lanchester. It's the Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> is the origin is the nanny at the beginning who quits and walks out the door. And the reason they need right. Mary Poppins. Wow. Wow. I never made That's that. Yeah, I never made that connection either. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The That's Bride of Frankenstein was their original nanny. And then they got well, Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. Exa- well, I guess they traded up a little bit. Yeah. But. It depends on how you feel about, you know, Frankenstein. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's fair. All right. So let's let's actually start talking about the scenes and the specific musical numbers of which there are many to discuss. But before we do, I have one of my signature scorching hot takes. So are you all ready sure. for this? Yeah. Lay it on me, Adam. <laughs> I think the songs in the Simpson episode are better than the songs in the movie. From the standpoint of I think they're more memorable and I can sing every single one of them by heart and I cannot do the same with the Mary Poppins ones despite how many times I've seen this movie. We've encountered this before. I'm trying to remember which movie it was that we were talking about this, but I kind of agree. There's something about the way Alf Clausen does some of his sound-alikes where I think they're more musically interesting. (laughs) Just for example, like, I think Cut Every Corner is more interesting than Spoonful of Sugar. Spoonful of Sugar is, how does it go? Just a spoonful <laughs> of sugar. <laughs> do, 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 yeah. Versus Cut Every Corner is, how does it go? If you cut every corner, you're not so bad. It's like, yeah. it's, I just think it's more interesting. I wish I was like, I had more musical knowledge, you know? 
uh, to, mm-hmm. to describe what I'm hearing, but it just feels like it's more complex. All that to say, I think I kind of agree <laughs> for the most part. Rachel, I imagine you don't agree with I, us because you're not the biggest fan of this episode. I mean, it, but... it's 50-50. I find Barney's song when he's in the gutter is brilliant. I think yeah. that's better than Feed the Birds. Buy me a beer, two bucks a glass. Come on. Help me, I'm freezing my ass. You know, a hundred times over. And that one, sure, I like I know all the words to that one. I don't know if I know all the words to feed the birds. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I I don't. (laughs) It's so much better than, yeah, just, you know, know, Barney laying in the gutter and just singing, you know, buy me a beer. I have very fond memories of Nate and I in high school, one of our friends birthday party or like it was her birthday dinner at her like parents house. And for whatever reason, the two of us launched into (laughs) that number. And like I was Mo, he was Nate does a very good Barney impression. And I just vividly remember seeing this around the dinner table and our friends, parents just being like, what in the hell is going on? I, I can, I don't know why, but I feel like I spent a lot of time memorizing that one. And, and so like, really? I know it inside out and I, and I used to like practice it. Like I can sing it as Barney um, yeah. and as Mo. I can't do the, I can't do the Sherry Bobbins part. Uh, and my Bart's fair, not very fair. good, but. Yeah. Okay. Well, but we're getting, we're getting a little <laughs> yeah, bit sure, ahead sure, of sure. ourselves. The first pairing of songs really is the perfect nanny and the minimum wage nanny. If you want this choice position, have a cheery disposition. Rosy cheeks, no warts. That's the part I would do. It's kind of the I want song, for yeah. lack of a better term, of like, here's what we're after. Uh, and again, like, I know all the words yeah. to the Simpsons version. If you wish to be our sitter, please be sweet and never bitter. Help us with math and book reports. Might I add, eat my shorts, Bart? Just cutting through the treacle. What makes, I think, is the interruptions from, like, Bart and Homer that sort of, like, take this song that is borderline saccharine and sweet. Well, it's literally Bart says, hey, I'm just cutting through the treacle. Like, he's, li- <laughs> it's, that's, that's their purpose is to take this song that is starting to get, like, a little too heavy handed and just, like, remind you, no, we're in a, we're in a comedy show. It's a great way to set up what we're about to get into because it is musically very, very mm-hmm. similar. do it anyone but him but it also like it has that classic and even the staging is very similar too it's like you know the way it's shot and everything but then of course the final nod at the end where they nod on the beat is exactly the way the kids do it in the movie which to that end one of the things that they talk about in the commentary is that uh, one of the layout artists on this episode was Eric Stefani Gwen Stefani's brother who was like one of the lead members of No Doubt quit No Doubt to basically work for the Simpsons but they said like we gave yeah right Uh, the director Chuck Sheets said like yeah we just gave all of this stuff to Eric because like he he obviously has like a Mm -hmm. great understanding of music so it made sense for him to lay out all the a lot of the like choreography and for lack of a better word the acting of the characters 
in the scenes mm-hmm. it is Eric's defense. so that's that's kind of cool and then obviously that brings us to the number that I think is both the most iconic number from the Simpsons episode and I would argue probably the most despite not winning the Oscar which I was genuinely surprised it was Jim Chimmery but uh, I think the most iconic Mary Poppins number but a spoonful of sugar and cut every corner a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down the medicine go down medicine go down Rachel which do you prefer uh probably cut every corner yeah, I mean, first of all, it's, it's you know, it's more relatable because the original song, like, it's not a good song. No, yeah. it's not a good song. Not really. <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> the thing that's too bad is, like, it's kind of the thesis of the movie, right? Yeah. And then, like, it comes back at the end, right? When Bert is talking to Mr. Banks, he's talking about a spoonful of sugar and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, considering it's supposed to be kind of what Mary Poppins is all about, it's kind of not the best song again it's not a very musically interesting song i think is the big thing and it doesn't even really show off like her voice that well or anything like that it's a pretty straightforward song for a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way i I think her performance is very very good and obviously this is sort of the number that really introduces Mary Poppins' magical abilities right. in the film. So I think that maybe elevates it in people's mind is like you're seeing all of these things happen, which is very impressive. You get the double mirror sequence, mm-hmm. which they reference again in, in the My Fair Laddie episode that we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I would agree that it's just sort of like for being the most iconic number, it's not necessarily the best in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think much it, like is the case with all of the other scenes in this movie. The special effects are the thing that yeah. make it interesting because some of them I'm still like, I don't really know how they did that. There's yeah. some things where you're like, oh, okay, I, I, I kind of get it. Like they did that in reverse or they, you know, whatever. It's puppetry or it's a variety of different things. But like the way that they mix everything together, I think is really the key in this movie where it's like they're clearly using many different techniques all at once in a scene to kind of like trip you up so that it's hard to learn the game. You have like lots of stuff sort of folding itself back up in this and drawers coming in and out. And you have the like bird puppet that lands on her finger. But it's Mm -hmm. again, like you can see her and you can see the bird clearly standing on it. There's no strings. There's no anything. And so it's like, especially at that time, I'm sure people were like, I have no idea how they did that. Well, the interesting thing though, is that I think cut every corner on the opposite end of the spectrum it's probably the it maybe not my favorite it's a very 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 good parody to call it a parody is like almost almost stretch like it is Mm -hmm. like nate you said they're really pushing the boundaries of fair use here if you cut every corner it is really not so bad everybody does it even mom and dad I think it's the closest to the original song of all the songs in the episode. Like, I love this sequence. It's, it's, it's great. so well directed. It's funny. You know, when it goes to the scenes where, like, it brings in Wiggum and Apu, like, it just, it always makes me chuckle. The policeman on the beat needs some time to rest his feet. Fighting crime is not my cup of tea. And the clerk who runs the store can charge a little more for meat. For meat. And milk. 
and milk from 1984. The expired milk gag is, <laughs> it's so stupid, but it's so funny. It's got a great background gag of Homer dumping the couch into Flanders. Yeah, yard. yeah. Like, I love every moment of this. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It kind of encapsulates the parody perfectly. You know, you have these expectations around who Mary Poppins is, and this totally deflates what your expectations are. Like, that's the joke, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but then it, it plays it out in all of these funny ways through bringing in all of these familiar characters and kind of mm-hmm. playing off of their shticks, right? But again, like, this is the exact moment also where the sort of scene parody is kind of undermining the plot parody where it's like, because she's not practically perfect in every way, then the joke of her kind of failing to change them doesn't totally make sense because she's actually playing into the Simpsons exactly the way the Simpsons are already. So anyway, but that's, that's like really nitpicking because when I'm watching it, usually I, <laughs> I'm just enjoying myself. But it is interesting with that song when I if I'm when I catch myself thinking about a spoonful of sugar, I hear like it's the American way in my, in my head yes, all the time. One hundred percent. They they blend together. Yeah, it's catchier. It's catchier yeah. than the original. Yeah, I hum cut every corner to myself. <laughs> I've never caught myself humming just a spoonful of sugar. like even. So I was watching Mary Poppins and I paused it to go get myself a drink or whatever. And it was after the spoonful of sugar thing. And I was just, I started humming to myself, cut every corner. I didn't start like, because it's just like, that's the earworm in my head. It's not the Sherman Brothers song. It's Alf Clausen's parody. Like it's just, there's something very special about that number. So then in the film we get to, there's probably the most famous sequence in the film there. We get to, Jolly Holiday and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which they don't actually parody in the Simpson episode, which is right. Interesting. I, so I think this is because of the Mike Reese thing. So okay. because this is probably the most explicitly magical portion as well, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets to like his worries about like stretching the reality of the Simpsons, and like one of the funny things that he points out in the commentary that I never thought about, but is really funny watching that episode now is that Sherry Bobbins actually doesn't really do anything in these numbers. She just stands there and sings. Right. And and yeah. he said that that's because he didn't want her to do anything <laughs> magical. And so they didn't really have anything else for her to do. And so it's like, other than obviously length, I think that's probably one of the reasons why this is not parodied in the episode is because how right. do you make this within the elastic band reality of The Simpsons where they can come back to it and be like, no, no, it's still a family sitcom. Well, I mean, you also have the complication of, like, how do you do a live-action animated combination <laughs> yeah. of animated True. series, right? Like, that's what makes this sequence so fantastical, and that's what I want to talk about right now, is just, yeah. like, the fact that this movie from 1964 has some of the best visual effects. Oh, it's amazing. Full stop. <laughs> like, not just by 1964 standard. Like, it's still, watching it the other night, it still blows my mind how, how good this yeah. stuff looks. Yeah, totally. And, like, Nate, you're coming to this having not watched it as a kid, so you don't have any of that, like, bias or, like, memory. Like, what were your impressions watching this when you saw it for the first time? Yeah, no, I think it is it is pretty remarkable. The only other movie I can think of that does the animation, live-action combination this well is, is Roger Rabbit, who framed right. Roger Rabbit. Which is made 30 Which is, years later yeah. with, like, in a completely different totally, process. Totally, totally. And still remarkable at that time, mm-hmm. right? But, yeah. like, to think that they did it at this point, so well is pretty amazing. Well, one of the things I would say is, like, I recently rewatched Roger Rabbit. Now, granted, it was in 4K. This was not. But, like, 
don't get me wrong. I think Roger Rabbit is a masterpiece and what they're doing is incredible. And they're definitely pushing the limits even more so than Mary Poppins. But like you can see the seams a little bit more in Roger Rabbit than you can. The the big thing in that is that they do things like, you know, a live action character is holding a gun and then a cartoon takes away the live action gun from them, which I'm still like, I have no idea how they did that. (laughs) But but like in this, you know, regardless, right, this is pretty amazing because like this, I feel like I have a better grasp of largely how they did it. And I feel like, right. It's so seamless. Again, especially for the era, but like the way that they composite people onto a background. There's mm-hmm. clearly also some real sets, though, too, that they're working in, yes. where you can see them actually moving across an object, and they're not just like totally floating in blue screen space. Mm-hmm. And then there are a few moments, like where she picks up a cartoon bouquet, and there is actually a moment where a cartoon hands her a live action bouquet. And both right. of those, I'm like, that's pretty impressive for the time. There was one moment where I was kind of like, eh, that doesn't look so great, which is when they step on the turtles and glide across oh, the water. Yeah. And you can yeah. just see their live action, like, like shoes. And there's no shadow. There's no, like, it doesn't look like it's touching the thing. But, like, that's the only moment. I mean, the rest of it is pretty great. Like, when they're riding the horses, right, from the carousel, and the horses are bobbing up and mm-hmm. down in space, and they actually look like they're, moving looks like the people on the horses are actually moving up and down the horses like dig into the ground when they graze the the, all of that stuff there's so much detail and i think it's very beautiful and also very technically well done you know yeah i mean one of the interesting things in this this documentary that i watched is that they have a bunch of the footage without the animation play Mm -hmm. so you actually get to see a little bit what you said, Nate, like they had the combination of sets and you you get a very clear indication of where that separation was. Right. I think what's so amazing, though, is like they weren't doing it on blue mm. screen. So they used this process called like the sodium vapor process, which I guess fell out of favor shortly after this. But the issue with blue screen is that like it requires a lot of like optical printing to get your traveling mats because there's no computer. So everything has to be done photochemically. So it's like layers and layers of film. And every time you do that, it degrades the image a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what's special about the sodium vapor process is basically instead of having a blue screen, they had a fully white background that is lit with these sodium vapor lights. And my understanding of how it works is that the spectrum that the light is is so narrow that it isn't picked up by the three strip like red, green, blue color huh. film. So you get basically just a black background. But then they are concurrently, as they're shooting, they're shooting black and white reversal stock, which does pick up the light, and that gives them, basically, they, they're they as they're shooting, they're getting their, their separate mat huh. at the cool. same time. So instead of having to do all of this, like, multiple print process to get your mm-hmm. mats and everything, it's like they've got their color stock, they're black and white, they stick them together, huh. boom, it's perfect. And that's why all of those mat lines are so... Because that was the thing that was blowing me away. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is so clean. There's no haloing, no right. outlines. Like, And the lighting looks nice. It's perfect. But my favorite part of this sequence has to be the penguin waiters. <laughs> I love the music when they come out and then like the dance Dick Van Dyke does with them. And Frank Thomas, one of Disney's original nine old men, he was the animator here. And he talks about how when he was given the footage, he's like, well, like you guys didn't shoot with the penguin. Like, how am I supposed to make this work? Like, because Dick Van Dyke is dancing and he's not considering where my 
penguins are going to be. <laughs> and so he's like, I, I did literally everything I could. I had them ducking out of the way and like jumping. And if you watch that scene back, that's what they're doing. Like Dick Van Dyke will move in a certain way that normally would knock over the penguin or whatever. So he, like a penguin will duck out of the way to like Jeez. avoid getting hit by his. <laughs> Sounds like just, a nightmare. It's, it's so clever. Though. It looks good. But it's yeah. masterful. Yeah, yeah. Like it's so yeah. good. I think it's just such an amazing sequence. Totally. One of the things that is very strange about this movie, which I gather is from the book, is the way Mary Poppins kind of gaslights the kids about her magic. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't, I don't really understand what that's about, but she just constantly is denying the fact that like anything magical happens. Right, yeah. It's just very weird. Like, I... I don't know. Her whole personality is very, very strange to me. She's very kind to them sometimes and then and then kind of like turns on them and is very like like snaps at them. Like there's that scene in The Simpsons yeah. where they ask for her to sing a song right before the mm-hmm. song with Barney, the booze hound. Um, and she, they're like, oh, you know, Sherry Bobbins, will you will you sing us a lullaby? And she's like, I've been singing for you all day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not a bloody jukebox. There's a bit of that energy in the movie, too. Yeah, totally. Like, even in the sequence when, like, Bert is trying to show off the magic and it doesn't work. And she's like, why do you insist on complicating things? Like, fine, I'll do it. Like, Jesus. Like, it's it's like an inconvenience for her that she has this, like, incredible ability. But then, yeah, you're right, Nate. Like, then when they're talking about it in bed that night, she implies, like, no, none of this happened. Like, what are you talking about? You're insane. And it's like... So did it happen? Like I, it's unclear to me whether or not it is. Meant I was to be thinking that too. Like, or... like, is there any moment? Because like the parents never see it, right? The kids do, obviously, and the, I think the only adult that does is Bert. Oh no, that's not true. Bert and Uncle Albert, but Uncle Albert is right. her uncle. I don't know whose uncle it is. <laughs> I think in the books she always has magical relatives. Mm-hmm. Right, I think that's part of her shtick. Uh, all, I, from what I gather, all of the books also have magical tea parties, which is, you know, very British. I, I mean, it's England, right? right? Like, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Uncle Albert, because it's I will say, even though I consider this a perfect movie and I'd make no changes, I do feel like this is the one scene that feels a little out of right. place. Which is which makes sense because they cut it from the Simpsons episode. They, yes, they had a yes, parody exactly. of this of this song. I love to laugh on the Simpsons episode with where they go and visit Patty and Selma and their song was We Love to Smoke, <laughs> which, you know, I think they probably cut for multiple reasons. <laughs> we love to smoke <laughs> till our lungs to gray. We love to smoke <laughs> 17 packs a day. It's pretty dark. It's it's a the, yeah. the, the deleted scenes actually on the DVD and it's brutal it's just like by the end the room is just filled with smoke and everyone's coughing including the children and it's like (laughs) wow in retrospect this feels rough like they imply they're like we love to smoke even though we know it's gonna kill us like earlier than like it's it and on top of it it's patty and selma who do not have beautiful voices to begin with so it's like it's hard to listen to yeah they made the right call in cutting it i think right yeah, I, I, what do you guys think of Uncle Albert? Like, so it's played by this character actor, Edwin. He's one of the only American actors to just like straight up not do a British accent. <laughs> he just does his voice. It's a very iconic voice. Uh, have you guys seen Wreck It Ralph? No, I, I haven't actually. It's actually pretty good. But anyway, one of the characters he's doing a, like a, an impression of Edwin 
in in Wreck It Ralph. Like I think he was like a a radio comedian. Sure. Probably so like, he's probably again, like the in voice. the his his voice is probably like in the Animaniacs or something too. You know, like just shows and up. Like, I th- I think he was in another. I want to say maybe it's Robin Hood okay. or The Jungle Book, like one of those mm-hmm. earlier Disney animated films. Like he's a voice actor in one of them. I can't remember which one, but like again, would have been to a 1964 audience. It's the equivalent of Meryl Streep showing up in Mary Poppins Returns. It's like okay, well here's another famous person that you recognize. But yeah, it's like this scene is, I don't know. It doesn't really do much for me. But again, from a visual effects perspective, it is very impressive. Yeah. It does sort of come down and become a bit more somber by the end which is like kind of the thing of the film of like riding the highest of highs but then also recognizing there's like the reality of life yeah I've, i kind of feel the same i think it's not my favorite scene i think the interesting dynamic that's happening is that mary poppins is being the bummer in that scene <laughs> right where she's like oh stop being so silly and Bert is like laughing too and they're all floating up to the ceiling and then the kids start laughing. Well, kind of, I don't, I think the kids just kind of start randomly floating up. I, you know, this may be just be an acting problem where they ask the kids to laugh and it seemed bad. So they didn't actually do it or whatever. Well, apparently the kid playing Michael was terrified of heights and refused to do it. And the only way they got him to do it was they said, okay, every time you go up, we'll give you a dime. And that was how like they convinced him and I guess they were also saying in the special features or commentary that, like, they couldn't get him to laugh at one point. And they're like, okay, Dick, get behind the camera and just, like, do whatever you can to make him laugh. And Dick Van Dyke said, like, I literally spent half an hour making faces, doing voices, doing pratfalls, doing whatever I could. And the kid would just refuse to laugh. <laughs> like, he was just being obstinate, as children can yeah. do. But, yeah, it's... it's He's doing, like, the ma- the make him laugh routine from Singing in the Rain. <laughs> um, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that kind of comes across in this scene. I don't think the kids really laugh, but the idea is that you have to laugh in order to, you know, float up to the ceiling. So I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. That's what it is. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I like Deadwind. It's it's the definition of that. Yeah, Yeah, he's he's great. And I was also, like, thinking about how hard it would be to play a scene laughing the whole time like that. I think I would pass out. You know? (laughs) Like, really. that, That would be really challenging. Yeah, definitely. And then that brings us to your favorite number, Rachel. Well, in Mary Poppins, it's Feed the Birds, but in Mm -hmm. The Simpsons, it brings us to a booze hound named Barney, which is, you know, again, I I think we're all in agreement. It is such Mm -hmm. a great number. A booze hound named Barney is pleading his case. Yeah, just everything about that parody is, is perfect. Like that that's the one out of this entire episode that is like just the best. Totally. I love it musically. I love the way it plays with all of the characters. Like you encapsulate Barney, you encapsulate mm-hmm. Mo, you get like yeah. great asides from like Bart, and then you have the great button from Homer at the end, right? Can I be a booze hound? Not till you're Which is yeah, great. exactly. Apparently, the censors were like, not even like eighteen, you know, twenty-one, <laughs> maybe. Nope, nope fifteen. No, nope. that's when you could be a booze hound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going back to Mary Poppins, this was like Disney's favorite song, yeah. like straight up favorite song. And allegedly, like he kept calling the Sherman Brothers like into his office to play the song, and it got to the point where like literally 
you know, years would go by, they'd be working on other projects and they would come into Disney's office and he would just look at them and he'd say, play it. And they would sit down and start playing Feed the Birds. Feed the birds, toppins a bag, toppins, toppins, toppins a bag. There was something about this song that really spoke to, to Walt's to Walt's heart, his uh, Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Apparently, at, at one time I was reading, they heard him mutter under his breath, yep, that's what it's all about. Which is interesting. Yeah, which is super interesting. I, yeah. I think it's a pretty song, mm-hmm. but like it doesn't really, the, it doesn't pull at yeah, my heart. No, it, it's not a banger. No. No. <laughs> no. I get that it's meant to be the, the crux of the the dad sees the money mm-hmm. being spent on the birds as a frivolous mm-hmm. thing. Whereas it's like, you're doing something out of the goodness of your heart for, you know, it's charity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's whatever. So like, I understand that it's sort of like meant to be the moral heart of the story. But to me, as, as certainly as a kid, this was the part yeah. where I was like, I fast yeah, forward. Like, oh, they're singing a yeah. slow song. I don't yeah, care. Going to get a snack. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's kind of like a folk song. Almost. It's a very, very simple song that like, feel like anyone could sing and even the lyrics sound like it could be a folk song or something like that to me i feel like that's kind of the the intention but yeah it doesn't do a lot for me although the way that scene is stylized is very very cool because you have like these matte paintings of uh mm-hmm. uh saint paul's cathedral saint Paul, yeah and then you have like rotoscoped doves or p- pigeons like over top of it in just like pure white and then you come down and right. you can see the the bird lady and then it switches to live action. But like that whole sequence is very cool. And again, I was kind of like for the time, like I don't know how they would do the rotoscoping stuff exactly, but it's very good. Like it's tight to the birds. They look like real birds that have been rotoscoped, mm-hmm. not like cartoon birds. Well, and then Rachel, you had an anecdote about the snow globe. Oh, apparently... You know, as they would do at the time, they wouldn't really keep a lot of these props. They'd be reused. They'd be torn down, you know, thrown away. And there's a story about when the Disney archives were being built and curated. The main archivist walked into a janitor's office and just said, what's that snow globe on the shelf? Is that the Mary Poppins snow globe? And he was like, yeah, I found it in the trash and it was too beautiful to get rid of. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> this sort of iconic moment in Mary Poppins, this iconic prop, this, you know, beautiful song that, that Walt Disney loved, just threw it in the garbage. And yeah, oh, janitor wow. saw it and went, nah, I'll, I'll put it in my janitor, janitor's closet on the shelf next to the mops. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Well, I mean, yeah, talk about saving a piece of film yeah. history. That's yeah, you would wild. think with Walt's attachment to the story and the song, yeah. that would have been something that they would have even gifted him. Right. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. Well, then we get another number that doesn't have a sort of like connection to the Simpsons, but uh, Step in Time. Step in Time, Step in Time. Come on, mighty Step in Time. It's a fairly long, lengthy mm-hmm. sequence. I think it's like 12 minutes that's long. The, whatever, that's my biggest deep. gripe with this movie is just that they're, the, every song is so <laughs> long where it's like, and then there's another bridge and then they're going to change key and then there's going to be a dance scene and then there's another verse. And then sometimes they like down the chimney, right, down the chimney, <laughs> run, run, run. and even like the animated sequence, it's like they also like string several songs together. So you just yeah. don't yeah. ever get a break. And on one hand, I'm kind of like, you know, if I were in a movie theater, maybe I'd be like, wow, like I never want this to end. Like, and that's kind <laughs> totally. of the vibe is just that you're 
like immersed in this world and so the longer the better but like some of these things step in time in particular i was kind of ready for it to be done because it's really repetitive but at the same time the right. sequence is really cool like there's a lot of great stuff happening on screen it's just the, the song that i'm kind of like okay <laughs> See, I don't even mind it. Well, I like it. I don't mind the. I I think because I'm the same because yeah. the visuals go with it. I like the dance moves. I like running up and down the chimneys. Yeah, I, I like all of that visual. So I didn't even realize it was twelve minutes long until just now. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, the the visuals here are like it's the sequence sort of starts with like the smoke stairs, mm-hmm. which is incredibly. Impressive. I love that. You get this. I, I, that's one of those special effects that I didn't really know how they did that exactly because. It's right. like, yeah, the smoke just like turns into stairs and then they walk up it mm-hmm. and the stairs actually appear to be in front of them. Like it's a little bit in front of their legs. So it looks like a physical object. I I really don't know how they did that one, but it's so cool. So they again, this is in the documentary. They built a staircase. But what they did was they padded it with like very, very thick foam <laughs> so that when they were stepping into it, it was almost as if they were stepping into like, again, you imagine smoke or a cloud mm-hmm. would not be solid. So it gives that like illusion. I mean, this is where Disney really was oh, a sure. genius. Like it, it, and then I guess they animated the smoke over top of the, right. the physical staircase. But like, it's such a beautiful like image. And this then... is all this is all such like Disneyland shit, right? Like it's oh, like yeah. it, it, I mean, it's incredible. This whole movie, the aesthetic of this movie, really strongly reminds me of Disneyland. It's kind of old school and a little bit like dated in that way. But also, there's so much magic to it and surprising things where you don't know how they did it. And, Anyway, yeah, very cool. Well, and you you alluded to the matte paintings. Before, oh yeah, like the, love the matte paintings. When, when Bert talks about like the incredible view of London, and then like the lights yeah. start to twinkle, like it's just it still holds up. It's really beautiful. Totally yeah. holds up. And then you get this very wacky sequence of like the chimney sweeps appear, like their heads popping out of chimneys <laughs> in like like totally breaking this beautiful moment into like utter insanity. And then this very long, very impressive dance sequence that apparently they had to shoot again because there was a giant scratch in the negative and the worst part was it wasn't like it was a scratch in the negative of the easy stuff it was the stuff where they're like jumping between the chimney stacks so they had to shoot it all over again the choreographers Dee Dee Wood and her husband Mark Bro, they were also the duo that ended up choreographing the Sound of Music so another like Sound of Music connection so apparently the song is based on an English pub song called Knees Up Mother Brown, <laughs> which is like, knees up Mother Brown, knees up Mother Brown. <laughs> so it's not that dissimilar from step in yeah. time, step in time. Step. But in the musical, it's also one of the more impressive numbers in the musical. But they've kind of rewritten the song to be like an actual song instead of just being <laughs> like the same like six notes and then being like down the chimney up the chimney <laughs> right like because that's it's, it's like 12 minutes of them just being like okay we're gonna do something new to the same yeah track. when you when like, you listen they, to the soundtrack that you're skipping that like yeah, no, one's yeah. Yeah, no, no one wants to listen to it for pleasure without the video in the movie it works though because it's like it always seems like someone says something and then they pick it up in the music and then yeah, go do yeah. the thing and like that that it narratively like in the scene i totally agree the scene is amazing and I think the song really works within the scene, but it's not something I'm going to go home and like listen to <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> but I just I cannot like again, sp- speaking to like the whole Dick Van Dyke thing, like I cannot get over how yeah. on fire he oh, is. Yeah. And, like and his legs are like as high as his head. Like it's just oh, my God. Like the pr- I cannot imagine yeah. d- doing this number. He's absolutely incredible totally. in it. 
And then it also has like a, such a Simpsonsy moment at the end when they've gone down the <laughs> chimney, they're in the house, and all the chimney sweeps are leaving. And Michael is like, he tries to sneak out, and his dad like kind of grabs him by the collar. And I'm just like, that is such a, like a Bart move. Like it feels, <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Like th- there are so many moments in this movie that feel like Simpsonsy. There's like the, this DNA to it, but they have. I mean, they have a very like old school sensibility with a lot of their humor that I feel like this is still playing in because of when it was made you know mm-hmm. and where and and what it's referencing because i think it's referencing humor that's even older than the movie is right like you know right. it's it's very like wholesome pre-war sort of stuff you know that's uh, that's yeah, totally. the disney sort of vibe so we don't really get uh, simpsons equivalent for this number but then in the simpsons basically we have to wrap this story up and much like a, a cartoon does it, ra- everything wraps up very quickly and very nicely. It has this number, Happy Just the Way We Are, which is another one of those ones where, like, I know every word. Around the house, I never lift a finger. As a husband and father, I'm so I'd rather drink a beer than with father of the year. I'm happy with things the way they are. I have been singing it not like literally all day today i've just been like for whatever reason i always start with flanders me too i just love that's my favorite part of the song they're not perfect the lord says says, love that neighbor shut up flanders oakley doakley do yeah exactly and as i was washing i i was giving my son a bath tonight you know i'm washing his hair and i'm just like singing don't think it's sour grapes but you're all a bunch of and he just like is looking at me like what what is dad doing like what is happening it's kind of it's kind of like a parody of the life i lead which is like mr banks's song which but right which sort of like crops up right i think that's the weird thing about it like structurally is just that it you know, in the musical, you first hear it at the very, pretty much at the very beginning, like right around the time when they're thinking right. they're going to hire a nanny. You get Mr. Banks basically being like, actually kind of saying exactly this. He's like, I'm happy just the way things are, right? The life I lead is so yeah. great. I love Britain. I love order. <laughs> I love, you know, being a man. I love, like, all of these things. I love working for the bank. When I return from daily strife to harp and wife, how pleasant is the life I lead. That's basically what the song is. And then, of course, his world gets turned upside down by Mary Poppins. He loses his mind. And this, like, song is kind of him coming to terms with that he kind of like realizes wait a second all of this happened like after we hired mary poppins but the cool thing is that the scene is between mr banks and bert and this is the scene i was referring to that's my favorite scene in the movie not my favorite song necessarily but i think that bert's compassion for mr banks is really touching Mm. and i related to it a lot like in a way that i wasn't Mm. expecting to of him sort of recognizing that like this man is kind of doing his best in the way he knows how to like be a father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also like it, his kids may not be getting what they need from him. And it's a, like considering how terribly they treat the mother, it's a, it's a surprisingly <laughs> kind of progressive sentiment of like, you know, that like this model of him just being a breadwinner and kind of like expecting his children to be adults and all this sort of stuff isn't really working for his kids and he actually needs to be a little bit more emotionally attached and, you know, give a spoonful of sugar sometimes, right? 
And I really liked that. Yeah. It was really nice. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. The scene where he sort of talks to the kids. Yeah. Again, like Dick Van Dyke, man. Like the scene where he tells the kids, exactly. like, your dad's trying. He's doing the best he can, the only way he knows how. And like that scene got me being a parent now. It, you know, everything always hits so much. And it's also the reason why I have not made it through Mary Poppins Returns without sobbing like a little girl during the song where the dad talks about his dead wife. <laughs> That was before I had a kid. I cannot, I, like, I will just be a mess the next time I watch that. But the ending of this film is surprising. It does that sort of, like, Simpsons twist of, like, really, like, punching you in the in all of the feels unexpectedly. Yeah. Like, I, I forgot re-watching it that, like, oh, yeah, there's, like, this really beautiful message at the end of the movie. It's not all mm-hmm. just, like, you know, animation mm-hmm. and, and musical Kind numbers. of. Except um, that the message, like, around Mary Poppins is kind of weird, right? Because well, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. She, because she's sort of like, nope, I have to bottle up all of my feelings and move on with my day and not tell them that I love them and... And, and just leave, and yeah. And just leave. Yeah. And, 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 and string poor Bert along. Right, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, the, the wind has changed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very weird. I also love that her umbrella comes alive and the little bird head starts talking. This Mm -hmm. really reminds me of Disneyland because there is actually a specific ride at Disneyland called the Enchanted Tiki Room. Have either of you been? That's what that was one of my favorites as a kid, even though it's like the worst thing. I don't know why a kid would like that, but I loved it. It is. It is my mom's favorite (laughs) part. There you go. You just get to sit on a bench and look up. Right. Right. And so I think kids love that. And apparently this puppet is actually made by the same company. And Mm -hmm. and uh, so the. Tiki Room opened the year before this movie came out. Oh. And and so mm. and using all of the same technology and it's early animatronics. So like that's the really cool thing right. about it is it's not puppetry, it is mechanical. It's like a mechanical bird that is like connected to the sounds, I think is how it works. So the sound is actually driving the movement, which is why like the lip sync's right. good and all of that. But it, yeah, totally made me think of the Enchanted Tiki Room. I went last year with my wife and her family. And the thing that struck me most about it was just that, like, as an adult, I was really sensitized to the clacking sound of their mouths. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, so it's still it's there. It's still there, baby. Mm-hmm. See, because this is the thing that always blows my mind about yeah. Disneyland is like, and again, I have not been since I was a, a child, but like my understanding is that over the years, they've sort of phased out certain things certain or like reskinned them with more modern, less problematic things. Well, there's yeah. that. Yeah. But like the Swiss Family Robinson house is now Tarzan's right, Treehouse right, right. or whatever. But I just assume that something like this, the Enchanted Tiki Room, which is literally just a bunch of singing birds, like, there's no way that's still there. Like, that's not a ride, but I, I guess so. I think one of the things, I'm not sure, but, like, I think one of the reasons why it might still be around is I believe it is sponsored by Dole. Yeah, because you can get the, that's where okay. you get the Dole that's whip you right get the outside. Dole whip. Yeah. That's the ah, good thing. like, whatever okay. it is, Adventureland. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I wonder if okay. maybe there's a deal. In that, and maybe that's why it's still around. But right. anyway, it is such a funny note to end on of the bird being like, you love them. You should tell them. And her being like, nope, I'm British and leaving. <laughs> and the voice of the bird is David mm-hmm. Tomlinson, the, the Mr. Oh, Banks. Oh, that's pretty impressive. It's it's a transformation. Yeah. And then, of course, The Simpsons ends <laughs> with one of the all time yeah. great Simpson jokes of, do you think we'll see her again? I'm sure we will, honey, as she is <laughs> murdered by a jet. It's, it's that sound. It's the sound of her <laughs> yes. in the jet engine. Exactly. That just 
gets me every time. <laughs> I'm sure we will. It's it's so good. It is the perfect ending to a what I think is a near perfect <laughs> episode, though. Rachel would perhaps disagree, but that's that's okay. In fact, we find that when someone disagrees, it, it makes for a good episode. So, One of the other features we love to talk about, Rachel, is the parts that seem like Simpsons jokes but aren't. The one that I just, like, it's, when it happened, I was like, what is going on? It made me laugh so hard, is when Banks is quote-unquote fired and the assistant or like, I don't really, I guess it's Mr. Dawes Jr. walks up, rips his flower, turns his umbrella inside <laughs> out and punches his bowler hat. Yeah. And it's just like, it's so stupid. But like, it's a very like, that to me is like such a Simpsons-y kind of gag. Uh, is there anything else that comes to mind for you? I mean, I think we already, you know, we already talked about the pull, pulling Michael out of, out of the line with the chimney sweeps. Yeah. And again, even, you know, right. that could even have a yoink with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the old like, you know, Dick Van Dyke is the old man, Mr. Dawes, uh, you know, and the yep. stairs. I feel like those are really the Simpsony ones for me. Well, even like when <laughs> it's something that felt like I was like, oh, this is something the Simpsons would do. When, like, Bert is going to take us to Cherry Tree Lane, but he's wearing his, like, one-man band costume. So as he's walking, <laughs> the cymbal and the drummer, it, like, it's just, it's so stupid and absurd. But, like, like I, I understand why it's happening, but it's, like, that's that's a, the level of detail of a joke that the Simpsons would definitely do. I was trying to think, if is there another Simpsons episode that has a one-man band costume? Yes, Homer, Homer has a, he's, um... What episode is that? But there is a scene where Homer has a one-man band. Yes, when he's young. It's a flashback, gets, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he gets, like, beaten up or whatever. And this is the music you tighten up with. Hey, what's the matter, you? You crazy kid. Uh, Pepe, go for the face. I feel like, for me, the one-man band costume, for whatever reason, is very associated with The Simpsons. Probably because it's the only place I ever saw such a thing as a kid. <laughs> I also love the line from the mom when Mr. Banks comes back. It's a very Marge-type line where she's like, George, you didn't jump in the river. How sensible of you. <laughs> That brings us to, like, the final verdict. Nate, you had a a question you wanted to ask here, rather than whether or not, like, did we like it or not? Because I think it's clear mm-hmm. that we all, across the board, enjoyed the film. But you had you wanted to ask something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, what, what I was thinking would be interesting to, to ask would just be, who did it better, The Simpsons or Mary Poppins? In other words, like, if you had to choose one to rewatch, or you could only have one or the other, which one would you choose? Uh, which is a tough question for me, uh, you know, for this one in particular. I don't know if it is for me. Again, like, not my favorite episode and the things that I like. The funniest moments in this episode, like, the boy for sale is great, but that's an Oliver <laughs> reference. Right. Like, <laughs> You're you just know, throwing like everything that. British in there at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my, my favorite line in this is is the whole Willie exchange with oh, yeah. Sherry Bobbins. Like, I will rewind that part and watch it again or just watch that 30-second clip online because that part's great but i'll take mary poppins over the simpsons episode fair enough that is definitely fair enough yeah i i mean the simpsons episode is definitely shorter (laughs) which is a big thing Um, for adam (laughs) (laughs) though i will i you'll notice that i did not say that this movie could be shorter which is shocking to me 
I because I think it's I think it overall it doesn't feel too long, but there are scenes where I'm like, okay, I get it. What this is, this what, is is the ac- what is the actual runtime? Two eighteen. Is it really? It's not, it is not a short movie, but that's the thing. It doesn't. No, feel it, like it doesn't feel long, and I'm very much the like. Ugh, that could have been you know ninety minutes. I, yeah. I, I love a movie that's under two hours. So that one surprises me. I, again, I don't know if it's because I know every beat of that movie mm-hmm. and I know what's coming that it doesn't feel long. It's when mostly I- for me the animated sequence. It's like on one hand, the animated sequence is so amazing technically that I'm kind of just like, I just want to see them do more of this. But it goes on for yeah. a really long time yeah. and it chains a bunch of songs together. And then Step in Time is also like really goes on for yeah. a really long time. So, yeah, but again, it's amazing. Those two out and you'll lose like 45 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing that we never really addressed this, but like the film doesn't have a plot. Like it's a series of vignettes, <laughs> right. like loosely tied well, together. Again, it's and it's, then, it's like, Mr. Banks losing his mind. It's like he starts yeah. out very orderly and then like you check in with him throughout the movie and it gets worse and worse and worse until he snaps. <laughs> exactly. But even like the whole thing with the run on the bank, which like ties us yeah. back to the uh, It's a Wonderful yeah, yeah. Life. That whole portion of the film doesn't really even happen to like the third act. So the first and second act have nothing to do with the ultimate like problem at the heart of the story. Right. But yeah, I, I agree. Like you could tighten things up, but it doesn't feel like a two hour. No, and I agree with maybe, that. Maybe, maybe what you need then is you need my edited for TV beta version that <laughs> yes, has some go. of those things cut out a lot of it was like the admiral boom scenes like there's things like that that you just don't need or maybe i just need commercial breaks yeah <laughs> to be like okay yeah, i'm gonna maybe. get a snack <laughs> yeah when i sat down and i saw it was two i was like ooh. hey i was like i did not set aside enough time to do this i guess i'm going to bed at like midnight tonight because in my mind it's like i don't think of it as being a long yeah. movie but it is i don't know i think this is really hard because like I love the movie and I love the Simpson episode and I I guess I would say the Simpson episode does it better in so much as that at least has like a plot <laughs> or can you like I, take like, the take Mary Poppins but keep the Simpsons songs right right exactly <laughs> if that were an option yeah that's the option that might be the think. option we all Mary pick. Poppins the movie <laughs> yeah like with the Simpsons parodies like that's like chef's kiss that's perfect that is a perfect combination yeah i mean look i think the movie is brilliant based on the performances and the special effects alone like that is the reason to watch this i think going into this season one of the things i said to nate was like oh man we're gonna have to slog through some long (laughs) long ass movies from the 60s and this i literally was grinning from ear to ear like the entire time like it, it this was not a chore in any way for me it was a favorite growing up, mm-hmm. so I, I had that. But I think this movie is very, very special. Disney considered this his crowning achievement, and I'm inclined to agree. It is a masterpiece. Yeah. I'm going to go with the episode. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, I think this movie's great. And I think if you haven't seen it, you should see it. For me, it's a movie I appreciate but don't Mm. love. Mm. I think it's technically astounding. I think the performances are great. I just don't have the sort of personal connection Mm. to it, I think. And from like a musical standpoint and even like a story standpoint, it doesn't like do a ton for me in terms of like, I don't have a lot of connection to the characters and the music. Again, I'm going to be humming the Simpsons songs 
after this, uh, totally. not the ones from the movie. So like <laughs> for me, I'll, I'll just, you know, go on the record and say I take the episode, but you know, don't let that stop you from seeing the movie. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, Rachel, one of the other things we always like to do is sort of what we call like the extra credit. Like if you liked this, you should check out this. So a couple of things that I would recommend. We've alluded to it a couple times. I think I like it more than you do, but Mary Poppins Returns, like over, I guess it was like 40 years later. No, it was 50 years later. They released a sequel starring Emily Blunt and, you know, big hit of the hour, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Mary Poppins Returns. I don't think it's as good as this movie, but I think it is very sweet and manages to replicate some of the things that this movie is doing from a plot standpoint like it actually has one which is maybe a big difference but yeah i i think i do enjoy that movie i think it's delightful it's not a perfect movie like this one is but if you enjoyed this you should certainly at least check that out bed knobs and broomsticks which mm. i remember renting it from not blockbuster but like the local video <laughs> store we had growing up like that's how long ago i remember sure. seeing it i don't remember anything from it but i remember the flying con- bed and nothing yeah, else. I remember the flying bed, and that's it. <laughs> I think, and I think there's like a kid catcher or something. Like apparently, it's pretty. I, oh, like the a child anyway. catcher is that bed knobs yeah. and broomsticks? No, or is that chitty chitty bang bang? That might be chitty chitty bang bang. All it all blends together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all weird, weird, surreal, terrifying. Yeah, yeah. But that is considered the spiritual sequel, so I would, you know, maybe check that out. And then uh, again, if it ever goes on tour again, and or it's ever in your town, I do highly recommend the stage show. I think one of the things that they did is they did go back to the book. So they brought in stuff that isn't in the movie. Mm-hmm. They've added new songs. They've sort of fleshed out the plot a bit more. And being a Disney theatrical production, the level of onstage magic is second sure. to none. Without spoiling anything, Mary Poppins does fly <laughs> through the audience. It is very, very impressive. Does she fall um, on the audience like in Phantom? No, it's the, no, there's no. Yeah, that's, that's a different engine. show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Their version of Spoonful of Sugar takes place in a kitchen and it is literally a kitchen that collapses and then puts it. Huh. That's cool. I mean, it's, that's cool. It is very impressive. So, yeah, if you ever get an opportunity to see that, do not pass that up. Nate, what would you recommend? So I kind of went in a different direction. That's more just about vibe. And the two movies that came to mind for me were Paddington. You know, it just in sheer Britishness, I think mostly, but also the kind of the family dynamic, the, you you know, and like the kind of, yeah, grab relentless positive. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that it all kind of jived for me. And obviously that's a fairly recent addition. So for some people that might be more accessible. And then the other one that I'm not sure, maybe this is kind of a weird connection, but I was thinking about Matilda. And and yeah. yeah, I think it's like a very different vibe. It's a lot darker. But but there's something about the world of it that reminded me of this. And I think it's the mix of the sort of reality and then fantasy coming together. Um, and totally. this movie does have a bit of a dark edge. It's always mm-hmm. pre- present just below the surface. And Matilda just kind of brings mm-hmm. it to the surface a little bit more um, yeah. with like terrible parents and, you know, like a scary school teacher and all of that. And that movie also has really cool special effects, as I recall. Yeah, it really does. Rachel, is there anything that you would recommend for our audience if they enjoy? I mean, this? I think the one that we have already talked about, Saving Mr. Banks, I think you mm-hmm. get that whole, you know, prickly P.L. Travers going back and forth with Disney. But what that film also does, it dives into sort of P.L. Travers's 
early life growing up and her relationship with her alcoholic father and kind of see where you know, Mr. Banks came from where she wants this father's love that, you know, he kind of doesn't know how to give the kids what they need. Again, like it's a very nice movie. It's a good story. And there's also a documentary on the Sherman Brothers where it it dives into all of their music and their partnership together. I assume it's on Disney Plus. It's been on DVD for about a decade. So I assume that's where it went. But yeah, it goes into their writing partnership. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as much as we kind of bagged on them uh the songs are like they're classics i may prefer mm-hmm. the simpsons version but that's not to say that the original versions aren't you know classics and they've stood the test of time for a reason and yeah they should be very proud mm-hmm. of and just and to see songwriters and to see songwriters at work and how you yes. know how when you were kind of churning it out for a company like disney sitting there all day and just going through all of these lyrics all of this music together on the studio lot. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, and just the task of translating this book with a very <laughs> difficult author into something like this and finding the right themes and all of that for the movie must have been an interesting process. And I think I was reading that they also wrote like a dozen or more extra songs that weren't included, <laughs> right? Of course. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. And it also allows us to reveal what we're going to be watching next, which, Rachel, I think you're going to be very glad we asked you to be on this episode <laughs> and not the next one. Because uh, Nate is going to make me suffer through something that neither of us realized was actually real. We thought it was just a Simpsons joke. And it turned out that, no, 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 this is an actual movie that really does exist. We're going to watch the Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin musical (laughs) Paint Your Wagon. Yeah. Paint Your Wagon is a real thing. And uh, I am not looking forward to it. I kind of can't wait. I think it's going to be an absolute disaster and it's going to be really fun to talk about. (laughs) I mean, I can't wait to listen to that because I need to find out if the Paint Your Wagon song is actually a parody. Is that real? Like, (laughs) No, unfortunately it's not. And that's 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 Simpsons definitely did it better in that case. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Your episode's over. Yeah, exactly. You've already come to that conclusion. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. This has been it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you all for listening and joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fan. Rachel, is there anything you want to plug before we wrap things up? Uh, Not really, but Fair enough. You can, you can, yeah. uh, can we can we find yeah, you online? You can, you can like, find me on Twitter. It's uh, Rachel is here, and all of my reviews and movie stuff on thatshelf.com, along with this podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yes, and if you enjoyed what you heard today, please uh, like and subscribe. No, we don't like and subscribe. We're not on YouTube. Please <laughs> leave us a review. Share this episode with the Simpsons fan or movie buff in your life. And uh, as we say in every episode, because we haven't come up with anything better. See around the plex. Snifter of wine Who am I to
drunk or I'll blast your rear end I found two bucks in coming my friend and soon let us live on this heart warming sea Till you're 